0: Allow me begin the lesson tonight, if I might, by at least reminding you of two very brief announcements, if I, if I might. First of all, our gospel meeting some two weeks away now, as we contemplate that that will be here so very swiftly and so very quickly. Uh, ben Flat again will be with us beginning two weeks from today on the 3rd of May and continuing through the 6th of that same month. That will be the Wednesday evening. Services again will be at 7 o'clock on Monday through Wednesday and our regular t- service times on Sunday morning, am I right in appreciating the service instead of being at 7 on Sunday evening? We'll be at the 2 o'clock hour Sunday afternoon. So let's just make a plan to be with us throughout the series of those uh, 9.30, 10.30, and then a meal with us uh, following the worship, and then 2 o'clock service on the Sunday afternoon. Also, again, a gospel meeting at the Oak Grove Congregation in White County taking place this week, and uh, they've invited me to be the speaker there tomorrow night. So if you have opportunity to come out and be with us, that's at the Oak Grove Church of Christ in White County. So come be with us if, if, you, if at all you can. As you might have noted in the lesson, uh, as it is set forth in the bulletin, uh, the title has to do with the Alpha and the Omega. And one of the things I should be quick to do is to excuse uh, Lucas. He re- read the text that I had asked him to read, but it was not the one as it is written actually in the bulletin. So if you'd like to make that correction, the lesson text is actually Revelation 22:13 and not Revelation 1, verse 11. So that was my asking him, in fact, to read the, the, the other text in the closing chapter of that book. You might notice though there is a remarkable similarity between the way that the two texts read and we will focus the spotlight on the text in Revelation 22 tonight. Alpha and Omega. It's a bit interesting as one studies the Revelation to appreciate the frequency of the appearance of that phrase. One can't miss the fact that it appears to be greatly significant and that there appears to be a rather remarkable lesson or series of lessons that ought to be gleaned from, in fact, a study of that phrase. I would hope tonight that we may, in fact, do that. Might we begin with some introductory remarks as we appreciate the wonderful way in which the Holy Spirit has selected to set forth the beauty of the Word of God. You and I can appreciate that this is by far the greatest masterpiece of efforts in teaching one can find all manners of aspects in which you and I can learn from ways in which the truth of God is presented. There are stories that you and I might call parables where we can easily see a message that is set forth in a physical way and thus by study come to learn the spiritual lessons that are to be shared in it. But there's also means concerning miracles. We can see activities that Jesus or one of the other apostles set forth, and by looking at the circumstances and appreciating that which took place, we can learn valiant and great doctrinal lessons, though they may have taken place in the aspects of a miracle. Perhaps on the third place, we can see great teaching as it takes place by often quotation of other passages where there's commentary and exposition of something that was stated much earlier. Inasmuch as all of that takes place, might I suggest that at least one other way has to do with various figures of speech that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use? And tonight we will look in particular at one that's known as a metaphor. Students who, in fact, study in probably a high school English course, at probably at some point, learn to study that which is called a metaphor. I've defined it in a very simple fashion. When one speaks with a metaphor, one places one thing in place of another. The thing that is put in place is recognized easily and clearly. It is, however, used to represent something broader and something that is of greater moment and of greater significance. I might suggest that tonight we will encounter a metaphor as we turn our attention to the Alpha and the Omega. This is certainly not the first time in the scriptures that a metaphor is used. Think about in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 13, on that occasion when God told Jeremiah to take your belt and go hide it beside the Euphrates River. God was using Jeremiah's belt as an object lesson and as a representation of Israel. In the same way that that leather belt became tarnished and marred and useless because of the constant exposure to water, Sometime later, when Jeremiah was told by God to go and dig the belt up and retrieve it, Jeremiah exclaimed, but God, it's no longer useful. God's remarks were, Jeremiah, my my people are the same way. They were once faithful. They were once useful to me, but now I'm going to cast them off just like your belt. The belt was an object lesson reminiscent of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Another lesson also to be found in the Bible Hosea's wife. There was, an a, there was a question not too long back in our bulletins on Sunday when I asked those Bible questions of the week. Her name was Gomer. The time was when, when she married Hosea, she was unfaithful to him. Though he was faithful to her, she went back to a world of prostitution. Jer- Hosea had to go and get her. The object lesson was Israel has been unfaithful to me. I have been a faithful husband to you, Israel, but you have gone about, gadded about, just like an unfaithful wife. Notice the object lesson. Namely, Hosea went to get her and urged her to be faithful to him, just as God had urged Israel to be faithful to him. Tonight, might we turn our attention to the Alpha and the Omega. With that kind of object lesson set forth in the Old Testament, What might be in store for us as we turn our attention to the New Testament? Needless to say, this is not the first object lesson of the New Testament either, but it is a very notable one in the Revelation. Let's begin then the central part of our lesson by reminding ourselves of the place of the Revelation and coming to appreciate the nature of this occurrence of that phrase in the book. The title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That alone sets forth the idea of who is the one behind this revelation. It is the Lord's. There is no man who dreamt these things up. Though it's true, we may see many things in the book that are incredibly interesting like beasts and dragons and bowls and vials. There was no hallucination involved here. It was the presentation of the God of heaven to the Son, who in turn revealed it to the angel, who delivered it to John, who in turn shared it with his servants. That is to say, you and me. To look upon it as that sequence or series of revelations points us so terrifically to an appreciation of this. The saints to whom this book was written were in desperate need of encouragement. They were in dire straits for a message of hope and a message of urging them onward to greater service and faithful service to God. These saints were in a difficult, difficult situation. They were persecuted. They were oppressed. They were afflicted. They were beleaguered. And in fact, some of them were slaughtered. Simply because they were adherents to the gospel of Jesus Christ, simply because they were faithful servants to the Master, there were those oppressors who were willing and did put them to death. In Acts chapters 8 and 9, we gain maybe one of the first impressions that this was coming. For on that occasion, we notice that even Stephen was stoned to death simply because he preached the truth of God. In the next chapter, a man named Saul had letters in his possession that permitted him to imprison those that were Christians. As we come to the book of Revelation, we find in Revelation 2 verse 10 that the Lord wrote to the church in Smyrna and said, Thou shalt have tribulation ten days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Four chapters later in Revelation 6 verse 9, on that occasion yet one more time in the marvelous visions of the day, we might well remember that on that occasion the sixth of those seals brought us to this point. John, what you see right in a book, John saw on that occasion that there were saints beheaded for the cause of Christ and they were beneath the altar. And they cried out, Lord, how long shall it be before our cause is vindicated? These saints had been put to death, lost everything in the flesh simply because they were children of the Master, faithful servants of the God of heaven, That's the kind of situation that these individuals were facing. No wonder they needed a message of encouragement. They needed someone to let them know your cause is heard in heaven. And there is the almighty God of heaven who is on your side. Do not compromise the truth. Do not give up on the faith. You remain faithful and God will see you to the end. With that kind of idea behind the 22 chapters of this book... Might we appreciate some other things that we should ever understand in order to make the fullest appreciation of it? First of all, the book, according to Revelation 1 verse 1, was written in signs. In fact, that is the word employed. It was signified, which means it was set forth in signs and in symbols. The language of this book is apocalyptic in character. That means, as we noted so often in our study of the Revelation, That the book is not a narrative. We can't read it like we would Matthew or Romans or even Galatians. It is apocalyptic. There are signs in the book and those signs have meanings. And we need to learn to understand the signs to see the meaning behind the sign. When we thus read about seven angels or seven spirits, seven dragons or bowls or vials, or frogs with swords coming out of their mouth, as is the case in chapter 13. We know that there weren't literally frogs, but they stood for something. And the meaning is what it was that they stood for behind the literal thing of which we read. That kind of idea reminds us that that marvelous and great and powerful message of this book is really this. God is on the side of those that are His, and their reward is heaven. That's what we see when we get to chapter 21. We see heaven disclosed in all of its marvelous beauty. We see a place without crying, without curse, without death, without tears. None of it is there. And finally, we notice that those who are blessed to inhabit it are the very ones who have been his faithful servants for the seal of God is in their forehead. Revelation 22, verses 4 through 6. On the other hand, not only is heaven disclosed, but also a place of fire and brimstone where the beast, the dragon, and all those who are their angels and servants are cast forevermore. Revelation chapters 20 and 22 both set that forth. Those ideas help us see as this screen closes that this book of Revelation not only infused the saints of the first century with hope and encouragement, it does the same for us. If ever there was a book in the Bible, that is, the Christian's charter of victory and hope, it must be the revelation. And so it is that as we often turn and read sections or portions of that book, might we be encouraged too to keep onward even when things seem dreary and when things seem dark. Perhaps it is in that way we can use those ideas to turn our attention to this phrase that I've already mentioned, Alpha and Omega, Isn't it amazing to notice that that phrase occurs four times in the Bible? I am the Alpha and the Omega four times in the Bible, and all four of them are in the Revelation. One does not find that phrase in any other book except this one. And perhaps it's interesting to notice that those four occurrences are these. Revelation 1 verse 8, Revelation 1 verse 11, Revelation 21 verse 6, And Revelation 22, verse 13. In looking at all of those occurrences, I think we can immediately understand that it is in every instance a powerful and beautiful text. For it occurs in a context that identifies and sets forth that which is truly penetrating and compelling. For it relates directly to encouragement or hope or the very aspect of your life in Christ with mine. It is at this point, I think it fair to say, of those four occurrences, we really should call one of them into question. It is the second one in Revelation 1 verse 11. The most ancient manuscripts actually do not have the phrase, I am Alpha and Omega in it. So might I point out, we really should say there are three of them. That text of Revelation 1 11, where indeed it is, again, that statement that was really not there in either the ASV or the Greek text, that does not remove the powerful character of the other three. And it does not in any way set aside the lessons that we might learn from a study of those other three. Perhaps that study could surround the following two questions or two ideas. You might notice the phrase, I am Alpha and Omega, begins with the pronoun I. Who does it refer to? and what is being said. Let me divide the remainder of the lesson into those two parts. Who is the one speaking? And what is the main meaning or the objective or the mission that is behind the usage of that particular phrase? I think it fair to answer that question first about who is the one speaking. For if we can identify that, that will go a long way toward helping us also answer the latter one. I am Alpha and Omega. Who is the one speaking? In Revelation 1 verse 8, it's God the Father. We find as God was revealing through His Son to again the angel, to in turn John, and finally to the saints. We have an overwhelming message of the eternality of God. I am God from everlasting to everlasting. Read Psalm 91 or Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. Here we have a reminder of that in this language. God the Father, who was, who is, and who is yet to come. He is simply God. In fact, it is, in a sense, that very idea that takes us back centuries to the scene of Exodus chapter 3, when there Moses was told, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. This was the instance when there was a bush that was on fire, but it was not consumed. The God of heaven was speaking to Moses through the nature of that bush. And one of the things that God uttered throughout the course of that conversation was this. Moses, when he was told, Go into Egypt and bring forth my people. Moses said, Who am I supposed to say has sent me? God said, You give them this answer. I am that I am. That was the way God described himself. Moses, I am. He didn't say, I was, I will be. He said, I have always been, I am. That reminds us here of the eternality of God in the sense that here He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Note the second occurrence in Revelation 21.6. On this occasion, it refers to Christ. This is the Son who is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. But the language is ever so beautiful. For on this occasion, the reference is again to what the Lord can offer. He said He is the one who will give to those the opportunity to receive that water of life that's everlasting. And that quenches the character of the thirst. Note the everlasting character. We're beginning to see on two occasions, the beginning and end with God in Revelation 1.8, and now the character of Christ who can quench with everlasting water in Revelation 21.6. What about the last one in Revelation 22.13? You might have noted that as Lucas read that a few moments ago, it had language that appeared like this, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. One final time, we see that in conjunction with the usage of this phrase alpha and omega is a reference to first and last, to beginning and end. I would submit that all of those expressions help us appreciate somewhat clearly the thrust and the ultimate meaning of this phrase. With that being said, the nature of Christ's quick coming and the everlasting character of him, let's look a little bit more carefully and also a bit more interestingly, at the exact phrase that is occurring and see if we can appreciate four brief lessons in the remainder of our time tonight. I have listed at the very top of that page the actual text as it appears in Greek. You might notice that there are some five letters. The various letters of the alphabet lead us to see the pronunciation would be like this. To alpha, chi, to omega. That was the phrase, as John wrote it here for us in the Greek. Again, simply stated, that means this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. As one appreciates the interesting way in which that appears, I might ask you to now notice, again, four brief lessons that might be extracted from it. The first lesson I've listed for us to consider is the one to whom this refers is identified as the Alpha. The Alpha. A-L-P-H-A. It is an interesting thing to notice that that word Alpha identifies the opening or first letter in the Greek alphabet. In the same way that the letter A is the first letter of the English alphabet, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. And so this individual, the one who is here speaking, which of course was Christ, identified and referred to himself as the first of all things the beginning, the outset, the initiative, the genesis of, if you will. The fairness to be seen in that perhaps reminds us that quite often in the Scriptures are we not reminded that the initial or genesis of all things really is God and is the nature of the Godhead. With regard to this universe and the world on which we live, how did it find its initiation? God spoke it into existence. It did not exist prior to Him. It did not exist before He created it, the book of Genesis tells us. And isn't it true with regard to Jesus? When one speaks about Him as being the Alpha, what was it Paul said of Him in Colossians 1 verse 18? On that occasion, one of the great slogans that might be used to refer to Christ and His church would be this one. He is the head of the body, the church, Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence? All preeminence belongs then to Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so in that way He too was the first. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that is the great hope that you and I have also of being resurrected. He was the firstfruits and we are those that shall follow. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 and 21. The recognition of that thought takes us then to ask the question somewhat more personally. If Christ is in fact the Alpha, if the things of God constitute the Alpha, do I make Him the Alpha of my life? Is God the waking thought of my morning? When I undertake a project or an activity, do I check with God in prayer and solicit His aid as I attempt to complete that project? As I attempt to work in that way, He is the Alpha. It would make no sense. It would be the height of folly to think that a project of any sufficient and great character would come would be completed without His blessing and without His aid. I'm often reminded of the approach that was taken by the constitutional fathers of our country, those men who convened in July of 1776 in an attempt to write a declaration of independence. They often, in fact, they began not soon after those meetings commenced to make a declaration to begin every single meeting with a prayer to solicit God's aid because, in fact, their thought was this. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the knowledge of God, is it conceivable that a kingdom could rise to prominence without his aid? The question answers itself, doesn't it? A kingdom could never have arisen. A human kingdom, a human country could not have arisen without his knowledge and without his sustenance and his aid. May you and I rely early in the morning and beseech the power of God to be with us that day and that our thoughts may be construed in wisdom and that our activities may be directed in godliness so that that which takes place will bring proper glory and proper honor unto him. It is the case, then, as we seek to begin our thinking and our projects and our work with the God of heaven, might we notice that to begin with God is the most important. To begin with me and my labor or you and your labor, we are insufficient and we are incapable But with God, all things are possible, reads Matthew 19, 26. And didn't Job utter it well in Job 42, 2, that I know that no thought can be withholding from thee, and that all things are open and naked unto him with whom we have to do, to quote the latter part of Hebrews 4, verse 13. The recognition of all of that helps us see that alpha, this little word in Greek, the first letter of its alphabet, reminds us God is the genesis of all things. That includes my life and yours. One of the last thoughts concerning this first lesson might take us back to Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. You and I owe all that we are unto him and that even includes our spiritual life. For it is into that body we are baptized, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and as such we are children unto God and able to call upon Him as our Father. But in the second place, consider yet another lesson. Notice that in addition to saying that Christ is the Alpha, it also is to be noted that He is the Omega. Here is something again we might so quickly pass by if we aren't careful readers of the Holy Scriptures. For notice that prior, we learned he is the Alpha. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Here he says, I am the Omega. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In fact, it is letter number 24. We remember in English, there are 26 letters in our alphabet. There are only 24 in the Greek. Alpha to Omega, Christ spans first to last, beginning to end, everything we can also learn a great deal of interesting lessons based on that thought as well. If it's the case that God is the genesis, Christ is the initiator of all that is noble and proper and appropriate. It is also fair to say he is the concluding matter. He is the end of the way. He is at the end of the road that should be rightly and properly traveled. No wonder some of the following thoughts and ideas so quickly can be stated. The New Testament affirms to us that all things are summarized in Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 1, verse number 10, I'd ask you to notice the way in which that thought is presented. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 10. The language is so sufficiently powerful that we should, in fact, lay some emphasis upon it. The text reads as follows. Now, this is a rather lengthy sentence in Greek, and hence we will only read the verse that is verse number 10, but we will make a few comments that relate to it. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Who was it then that would be the one in whom all things are gathered together? Paul said it's Christ. Christ. All things will be summed up in all dispensations in Christ. That leads us to see then that he is truly the epitome of all things. He is the zenith, the crescendo, the final point, the absolute declaration. He is the omega. One of the things we can then often remember when we refer to our language, when we refer to a particular topic or theme and say that's the A to Z, We mean it sums up everything that there is to be said about it. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Everything concerning this life and the life beyond, I have addressed and it is summed up by some means in what I have brought and what I have offered and what I have presented. That leads us, I think, to ask ourselves some interesting questions. In what way do we close a day? We affirm that it would be wise on our part to beseech His aid early in the day for the activities of that day. As we draw near its conclusion and are able to reflect upon it, are we as quick to thank Him for the precious goodness of that day or that which has been able to be accomplished? Are we readily able to thus close that day with a remarkable reflection upon the things that God has made possible? We do read again, I am the Omega. I close the matters, I bring them to the conclusion, I close them in all matters that are proper and right. Interestingly enough, when one makes reference to this word, Omega, in this context, we can't help, I think, but think about that subject that scholars today call eschatology. That is a fancy word that just means this. What's going to happen at the end of time? This much we know. Christ is going to return. And when he does, he will close the affairs of time. There shall be a general resurrection. But who is it that will initiate all of this? Christ will when he returns. No wonder he's called the Omega. He is going to ring the bell that closes all the affairs of time. Didn't Paul affirm in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 that the great trump shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, and there shall be this great period in which the dead in Christ shall rise first, meeting the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. When that great trump shall sound, it is the occasion that Christ shall initiate that set of activities. When he leaves the portals of heaven to, again, bring the things of time to its end, Christ is the Omega. He is that great matter that closes the affairs of all that life is or ever has the power to be. Maybe we can notice yet a third lesson. We might have thought that all that we might have learned was to just note the Alpha and the Omega. But our King James translators didn't do us the greatest favor in Revelation twenty two thirteen. 13. If you'll notice the way that reads again, I am Alpha and Omega is the way that we seem to read that in English. But a moment ago when we looked at that Greek text, there were two definite articles in that text. Literally, the Lord said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We often, in fact, directly use that definite article, the, to be very specific and very declarative about something, meaning that it is one thing and one only. It is not one among many. There is only one that can satisfy and only one that can, in fact, occupy that position, and that is the meaning of the phrase here, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There is no other Alpha but me, and there is no other Omega but me. I am the only one. If only the human family could learn that lesson. Life fashioned or built on anything else in the final analysis is wasted. Life structured in any other way based on any other attempted foundation, fashioned after any other model or example, is ultimately and finally folly and nothing more. Didn't the Lord say on this occasion, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one and only? In terms of bases for life, how was it Paul affirmed it in 1 Corinthians 3.11? For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus how incessantly and how adequately we need to found our life on Him as the bedrock foundation. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. That kind of observation perhaps points us also to note this. When we contemplate our position, our place in the church, we ought never to forget the statement, and rather famous one the Lord made in Matthew 16. On that occasion, when in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He straightforwardly asked his apostles, Whom do men say that I am? As often was the case, they had answers, and they at first affirmed that some say Jeremiah, some one of the prophets, perhaps like Isaiah, perhaps some even like John the Baptist. But then Jesus, in his rather direct and truthful fashion, pointed to them without any apology and said, But whom say ye that I am? Here Peter responded. Peter, in that rather bold and aggressive way, simply said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was in reply to that response that Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's reading through verse 19 of that chapter. What did we say Jesus affirm in that text? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the foundation and the head of the church. He is both. We thus appreciate a church founded or in fact attempted to be based on anything else is not his church. It is not the one he built and it's not the one he founded and it's not the one he died for. He affirmed, we read in Paul's writing in Acts twenty twenty eight that his blood purchased the church and there is only one of them, Ephesians 4, verse 4. That thought then appreciates in our mind the great glory of some of the following ideas. Those other bases for life then can be nothing more than lies. They are falsehoods at best. They are deceptive, for there is only one true foundation. Perhaps in one of the final things that we might be able to say about the time of our study tonight, if indeed it's the case, and certainly it's true, as Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, It's then that at the most basic level, all the things in my life and yours should revolve around him. Other matters are only tangentially related at best. It is very much like the axle that's at the center of a bicycle wheel. The spokes connect the axle to the rim. The spokes, of course, allow some connection to take place, but that which is at the center that provides the strength and basis for the spokes is the axle. What's the axle of your life and mine? Where does it find its meaning? Where does it find its power? Where does it find that which ultimately gives it its objective and purpose? I would submit to you that it must be Christ, for he is the Alpha and the Omega. Many times in the scriptures we read about those who chose a different path, and those who in fact learned to regret the choice that they made. I've listed in brevity just a few examples near the close of that last slide. As we return to number 16, suppose we were able to ask Dathan, Cora, and Abiram, did you choose wisely when you chose the basis for your life and when you chose to act in the way that you did? I have not the slightest doubt that every one of them with tear stricked faces would say, we acted as fools because we chose to rebel. We might remember that the earth opened at the command of Moses through the power of God, swallowed every one of them and their families. They were re- rebels against God's commandment. Today, might we be wiser than they? For we too can be rebels if we choose to base our life on anything other than the truth of God, and that truth cannot be compromised. But suppose we could ask other people questions. Suppose we had the opportunity to ask that rich man of Luke 16, did you act wisely when you scorned Lazarus in life, when you wouldn't allow him to to appreciate the benevolence that you had to offer? Again, there's not a doubt in my mind that he, with a clenched fist, would say, I acted as a fool while I had the chance in life. I had brothers whom I could have had the chance then to speak with, and I didn't. And after I died, it was too late. One more time, can't we see that when a life without Christ is a life that's nothing, it's a life without power, without meaning, and without the final objective of the hope of heaven. In the third place, how did Jesus utter it in Mark 8:36 and 37? Did he not there say that a man would exchange a lot of things in life? But how did he put it in those two verses? He said, yea, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, we understand the power and worth of even one soul. It's worth more than the whole world. That word only leads us to see John fourteen 6, doesn't it? Jesus there said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. One more time, isn't that another way of affirming he is the omega as well as the alpha? The last three examples are all taken from various texts of the New Testament. The first of them, you might notice, is from the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, as well as Philippians 1, verse 21. Didn't Paul there say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? He knew that a life without Christ was a life that was empty, a life that wasn't anywhere near the powerful thing and the thing of salvation that it ought to be. Peter's words also could be exclaimed in John 6, verse 68 when there were many disciples who chose to walk with the Lord no longer, Jesus asked, will ye also go away? And it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter knew there was nowhere else that could provide that proper wisdom and that structure for life and the hope of heaven. And perhaps in its final way, in Jude 21, we are each admonished to keep yourselves in the love of God. We have an obligation to perform that activity, to keep yourselves in the love of God. Have you kept yourself in the love of God? The only way to do that is to make usage of the Alpha and the Omega. The only way to do that is to rely upon the Alpha and the Omega. Tonight, have you relied upon Him? Have you become a Christian? we can safely say that if you have reached that age of knowing right from wrong, that age of knowing that the Son of God died for you, and who knows now that you are in sin, and have not yet obeyed the gospel to this point, you have never relied upon the omega and the alpha. You need to make that decision tonight. If we could be of assistance in the completion of your belief, your repentance, your confession, and baptism, we would certainly be desirable to help you in that. If you have become become a Christian at some point in life, but you have lost sight of who the Alpha and who the Omega really is, maybe you've come to think that you are. Maybe you've relied far too long on your own abilities and have only come now to realize the folly in that set of decisions. Tonight, if we could pray for forgiveness of sins that are known publicly and beseech the God of heaven to forgive your penitent and confessing heart, we would be happy to pray on your behalf for that very thing. If we could be of assistance to you as you come to the Alpha and the Omega, don't delay, don't put it off, don't procrastinate, but let that be known publicly even now while together we stand and while we sing.